All right. How are we doing, Red Rocks Church? Good, good. Welcome, especially if you are new. It is a pleasure to be with you. Um, my name is Jesse. I have a great, great job where I get to work with our young adults at Red Rocks Church, and so it's a joy to be with you guys today. I want to say what up to Arvada, Lakewood, Brussels, and Evergreen. Hello. I love you guys, as well as our people at God Behind Bars. We want to say that we love you guys, and um, yeah, honored to be with you today. Uh, I want to also thank our directors. They have given me a lot of the material that we are going to use today. And we are in a series called uh, Greatest of All Time or Goat. I don't know about you, but if I'm the greatest of all time, please do not call me a goat. Right? You know, but we have been in a series called The Greatest of All Time. And on the screens, you see pictures of people that the world considers great. People like Michael Jordan, people like Michael Jackson, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Oprah, right? Like the greatest of all time. People would say that these are the greats. And sometimes society says these people are great. And then sometimes they are self-proclaimed great, right? Like Muhammad Ali, who said famously, I am the greatest of all time. He said, I am. If you don't know about him, he loved to talk. And he said, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, right? He said this after he said the comment about being greatest. He said, "Um, I'm not just the greatest. He said, I'm double greatest. Not only do I knock them out, I pick the round. I'm the boldest, the prettiest, the most superior, most scientific, the skillfulest. I don't know if that's a word. Fighter in the ring today. And he would consider himself the greatest of all time. And yet, even though society says that this is what is great. Jesus already told us who he considers to be the greatest of all time. Jesus picked out a man and said, I tell you that this is the greatest man that ever lived. In Matthew 11, verse 11, he says this, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And so he said, you want to know greatness? Look at my friend John. And we all want greatness, do we not? I think we all want our lives to have effectiveness, to have intention, to have power behind it. And yet, I think as a society, we are clueless as to the virtues and the characteristics that make a great life. I mean, if I were to ask you tonight, what what would make your life great? What would make your life great? Would you say a marriage? Would you say, oh man, if I got married, that'd be great, (laughs) you know? Would it be kids? Is Is it a dream job? or a dream house, or more money? Is it more time on the golf course? Like, what would make your life great? If we were to ask society, again, I don't know what the answer would be. You could ask Google. Google, what what would it be? What what does it mean to you to be great? And they would say, well, it's having technology that, you know, is ahead of the culture. If you were to ask a businessman, he would say, oh, it's going public and having great stocks. If you were to ask a college student, he would say, having amazing grades and, like, my social calendar. It's got to be great. If you would ask a leader, they would say, um, having, you know, lots of people that I, I have the privilege of leading. And so greatness for us in society, the way that we would define it, even though we wouldn't say it, greatness to us is amassing more of whatever for us. In other words, greatness is getting more 
for me. And yet the Bible says this about greatness in 1 Corinthians. It says, do you know or do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Only one is great. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. He um, lived during a time where they had Olympians and people that would go into training. And so he's trying to use that reference so that people had an image as he writes to them. And he says, they do it for a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run as someone who is running aimlessly. I do not fight as a boxer beating air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified for the prize. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, my life is great. My life is full of intention. My life is full of power. When I, he says, when I run my race, I know exactly where I'm going. When I hit something, like I never miss the mark. I live with greatness. And yet, he said, my greatness has nothing to do with me. But it has to do with my God and his people. He said, I am running the race of my life. And I'm doing it to go after God's kids. And so how do we define greatness today, Red Rocks? What does greatness look like for you today? The Bible says in Matthew 5 that the meek shall inherit the earth. And meek means power under control or greatness under humility. What does it mean for us to be great? And the world says greatness, I think, is getting more for me. But Jesus would say this. He said greatness is giving yourself for my glory and my people. And so I titled today, if you are taking notes, all of the greatness, none of the glory. All of the greatness, none of the glory. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for your holy word. God, I pray that I would divide it correctly today. God, I pray that you would speak beyond these walls. God, that you would raise up within your church people that are fearless for you, that run their race with um, effort and with resilience and with power, God, and they do it for your kingdom. God, I thank you so much for the ability to be here today and for Red Rocks Church and all the churches in Denver. We pray this in Jesus' name and everybody say, said, amen. All right, awesome. So um, our life, according to the Bible, is a race. Acts 20 says this. It says, uh, there is a race that we are out to finish, that we need to finish the course that God has given us. According to 2 Timothy, Paul said, um, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race right? Philippians 3 says, let go of what is behind you and lay hold of what is ahead because you are in a race. According to Galatians 5, uh, he's describing a runner who is running his race well and then kind of got off track. In Isaiah, it talks about how we will run and not grow weary. Life is a race, which we can kind of feel on a daily basis, the stress of it, the tension of it, the, 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 anxiety of the whole thing like we are in a race do we have any track runners anywhere in the house amen amen I'm not talking about running to your fridge during commercial breaks you like I'll run it's important you know um no I ran track uh my freshman year of high school it was the only time that I ran track and I was a freshman I was um like really nerdy I know it's difficult to believe but I had like braces I was pretty small right and I roll up on to my very first practice with the track teams and I realized that I'm going to be on some relay teams with um some pretty athletic individuals right and I show up and I'm like really small and like it's fine 
line, you know, and I'm like, hey, you know, and there's three seniors that I end up running with on relay on a relay team, the four by two and the four by four. And they were, I mean, they had gone to state before me. They were the real deal, right? And so my very first race, I am completely intimidated, absolutely intimidated. I remembered like breathing into a bag like that bad. Like I walked around and like girls like have their headphones in and they're listening to street rap and like their legs are the size of water barrels. And I'm like, it's going to be fine. You know, like just so scared. But not only that, I was the last, I was the anchor leg. I was the last person to run, which just made the anxiety heighten as the race went on. And I remember the very first time I get into my, my place, it's my time to go, and you take off in the baton exchange zone, I get the stick, and then I'm off on my very first race, my very first track meet. And they had given me a two-second lead, and so my job was to keep the lead. And so I hear a girl behind me, and I'm like, woo-woo, she's right there, you know, like, just go, you know. And I, I end up crossing the finish line. We get first, and I'm so excited, right? I'm like, got you, girl, right? Like, just talking trash. I put my baton up in the air. I throw it down on the ground. And she goes, um, excuse me. She threw her baton. And I was like, you're a sore loser. Uh-huh. But for those of you who don't know, an official blew his whistle and disqualified us. And it was almost as if in that moment I learned a really hard lesson because what I thought the race was about, I totally missed what the race was about. I thought that the race was about me running my fastest. I thought that the race was about me doing my best. I thought the race was about me getting my personal best time. And I completely missed the point. The point of the race was for us as a team to pass the baton, you know, fluidly and get the baton Get that prize over the finish line. That was the goal. And I think in culture today and in the American church today, when it comes to the way that we are living our lives and what we consider great, we are missing the point of our race. We think it's about us running as fast as we can. And so we get into college and we work really hard so we can go to our parents' parties and brag about what kind of degree we got, right? And then we're like, you should see the degree I'm going to get next. It's more expensive, right? And then, and then after that, we get a job, right? And, after, you know, and at that point, the race is all about the promotion. It's all about advancing ourselves and making sure that we are in the right place at the right time with the right people, and then after that, it's a race to find the right person to get married to. And it's a race to find kids. And it, or find kids. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Don't do that. It's illegal. Um, <laughs> it's a race to have children. Or it's a race. It's a race to have more money, more time to yourself, more free time, more time to do the things that you want, more time uh, to spend in retirement, more money to spend in retirement. It's a race. And we completely miss the point, and we think that our race is about us getting more for ourselves when it's not about that at all. It's actually about us giving away ourselves for someone else. Paul says this about his race. He says, I have become all things to all people so that I might by all possible means, I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Another translation says, I do all of this. I become all things to all people so that I might win, so that I might win, so that I might win. What is he going to win? He says that I might win some souls. 
I am in the race of my life. And it's for God's glory. And it's for God's people. This is the prize. And church, we are in a race, and it is his race. And the goal is not us getting more. It is his people. This is the race of our lives. This is what the Bible talks about. The prize is his people. Paul understood this as he was writing, and so did a man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist was completely focused in his life. He was poised. He was intentional. He was um, just fierce in the way that he lived his life. And Jesus considered him great because he lived it for God's glory. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark 1, and we'll read a little bit about his life. It says this, Mark 1, verse 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the, a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And all of the country and all of Judea, or sorry, yeah, all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair because he was cool, and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, and he was preaching, saying, after me, there comes someone mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have been baptizing you by, the wa by water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Out of all of the characters in the Bible, I am so Besides Jesus himself, I am so taken with John. I have been since I started reading the Bible. He is so fierce. He is so bold. And he just does not care what other people think about him. John was related to Jesus. It says that Elizabeth, his mom, and Mary, uh, Jesus' mom, that they were kinswomen, meaning they were probably cousins, maybe second cousins. He was uh, prophesied about in the book of Isaiah and the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, God said that there will be a voice that I will send out before me and I, Adonai, will then reside in my temple and I will bring a new covenant. If you don't believe Jesus is the son of God, please investigate some of the prophecies about his coming and about John's coming. He was prophesied about in the Bible. The first prophecy, he was the first prophet in 400 years. There had been 400 years of silence, nothing. There had been no words from God. There had been no, no miracles, no, no signs from heaven, nothing for 400 years until John arrives on the scene. He was a Nazarite, meaning he had taken a Nazarene vow, which is why he wore the clothes he did and never got married. He was called the baptizer, which is where we get the Baptists. John was fierce. He was intentional. And greater than any of these things, I think like Paul, John understood the purpose of his life. In society today, we live in a world where people do not understand, Christians do not understand why they are here, which is why the Purpose Driven Life is the greatest, like it's one of the best-selling books of all time. The subtitle of it is, why in the world am I here? <laughs> because none of us know, right? John knew exactly why he was here. He was laser focused, and because of this, he didn't care what anyone thought about him. And I think it's hilarious, because I picture him like being out in the desert, and he's like preaching, right? And he's like, you know, getting real crazy with people. And his friends walk up, and they're like, oh, hey, John, hey, looking good in the animal skins, bud. Yeah, real great. Um, hey, people are starting to talk. You think you could wear, like, cotton? It's all the rage, man, you know? And 
And he's like, oh, no, you're, you're good, you're good. Okay, camel hair, don't care. I hear you, John, right? Like, like, or they walk up and they're like, John, I know you're into eating locusts, man, but um, the kids are starting, you're scaring the kids, man. No, you're good? All right, dude, okay. And when I read about John, I honestly don't think that he is doing any of these things to be eccentric. I don't think he's trying to do any of these things to be a Jesus freak. I think it's because he was so focused on his purpose that he didn't, I don't even think he thought about taking a wife. He didn't care about his hair. He didn't care about the way that he looked. John understood, and Jesus called him great. John understood why he was here. He was here to bring glory to God, and he was here to find God's people. And as a Christian, listen to me, if you are in here, and maybe you became a Christian last week, or maybe you've been a Christian your entire life, newsflash, this is our job. In Matthew 28, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, all authority, all authority. You think there are authorities in this world? All authority has been given to Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. Do you know what he was telling his disciples? He was saying, run, run. There is not enough time. Go find my people and bring them home to me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always. This is our goal, to run our race as great as we can for the sake of his glory and his people. And I think that John can give us some clues as to how to be this kind of greatness. Not a worldly kind of greatness, not a Time Magazine kind of greatness, this kind of greatness, the only kind of greatness, church, that matters. This life is a vapor, and we will be with Jesus soon. This is the only greatness that matters. We will meet him, and we will give an account for everything that we did. This is it. This is the goal. This is the prize. This is the glory. His glory, his people. And I think we can look at the life of John and implement some stuff even today, today. And the first thing is this, that we would be a voice in the wilderness. We would be a voice in the wilderness. John 1, says this. John replied the words of Isaiah the prophet. I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So he's having people get their hearts ready to meet Jesus. And it calls him the voice in the wilderness. Another translation says he is a thunder in the desert. He is power. He is a powerful voice in the desert. Benjamin Franklin in the 1700s, he was talking about an evangelist um, named George Whitfield. And he would preach to over 30,000 people at a time without a megaphone or a microphone. Benjamin Franklin said, I think his voice can stretch over a mile. This was John. He was thunder in the desert. Not only that, but there had been no words from God or about God in 400 years. No signs, no prophecies. In other words, it was a spiritual wilderness. Nothing, no words, no thoughts about God. And I think that we would say in 2017 that we are living in a spiritual wilderness of our own. There's a book out there called Generation Z, and it's um, written by a man named James Emery White. And in it, he describes Generation Z, which is anybody born 1995 and later. And he says, this generation, unlike millennials, unlike baby boomers, unlike Gen Xs, it is, the most, it is growing up in the most post-Christian and spiritually illiterate generation that we have ever seen. 
He says, but even though this is true, even though this is true, Barna Research is telling us that, the, that in society today, in America today, they are more open to spirituality than ever before. They are hunting for the supernatural. In other words, they are hungry, hungry for God. And they are living in a spiritual wilderness where there is no talk of God at all. And God is asking us, are you willing to be my voice in the middle of a desert Hungry for God, and nobody is saying anything. I'm wondering, Red Rocks, would we be willing to speak up? Would we be willing to use our voice? This is what God is asking us to do. Would you be great with your words? And you might say, Jess, well, that's just too difficult. I don't know if I can actually talk to anybody. It's illegal at my job, right? Like, (laughs) I can't, right? Oh, no, I can't, I'm sure. It's not difficult. You're going to walk into work tomorrow, and Bob's going to meet you at the water cooler, and he's going to be like, hey. And you're going to be like, hey, Bob. He's going to be like, so, um, I prayed for the first time in a while last night. And all you have to do is go, oh, okay, Bob. And set down your cell phone and your coffee and be like, you want to talk about that? Some of you in here, you are CEOs and managers and you have influence. You have influence. People hang on your every word. Do your words reflect the life and the goodness of Christ? Do your words want people to be like Christ? Do your words want to draw people to Christ? Some of you in here, you're first responders, responders, you are cops and firefighters, you are EMTs and you show up at people's darkest hour. Do you lean down and say, hey, God has you. God's got you. If you think it's difficult in here tonight, let me tell you this. It's not because Justin Bieber did it. (laughs) Justin Bieber uh, was just at the One Love Manchester. For those of you who aren't aware, they put on a big fundraising event, a big concert for those uh, victims of uh, of the terrorist attack that happened in Manchester. Manchester itself is the most spiritually dead country, one of the most spiritually dead countries in the world. They don't talk about God. They don't even think about God. You say, do you go to church? They're like, like for a funeral? Like. And Justin Bieber got up in front of tens, hundreds of thousands of people, and he said, raise your hand and let's proclaim this together. He said that God is good, even in the darkest of spaces. Do you know what he was saying in that moment? He was reciting essentially John 1, which says the light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you know what he was doing in people's hearts in that moment? He was breaking them open. Spiritual hunger, no words. (sighs) I was in an Uber and I love, guys, I love, I'm kind of weird, but I love talking about Jesus. I love it. And so John's like, oh no, we're getting the Uber. And he knows. I'm like, this guy, he's mine. Like, he doesn't even know. <laughs> his name's Michael. And I don't even have to start the conversation. Michael begins telling me that his, that his son had overdosed a few years prior. And that he was so brokenhearted about it. And he, and he said, I just want to know, you know, I, I want to know. And I was like, well, what, Michael? And he's like, well, when my lights go out, when the lights go out, like, where, what, like, I just want to know that I'm going to see him again. And I said, thanks, Lord. <laughs> Michael, do you know Jesus? It's not hard. 
church? Are we using our voice? God gave us a voice to preach the best news on the planet. And you might say, I'm scared to talk about Jesus, Jesse. I don't want to seem like a Jesus freak. Well, look at John. John had matted, I mean, he had like dreadlocks and like locusts sticking out of his teeth. (laughs) And Jesus was like, that's great. I love what you got going on. It's good. Great, great, John. Keep it up, right? The opposite is not working in 2017. The Church of England just told its congregants, Christians, they said, please stop talking about Jesus outside of the church with outsiders because we actually think it's doing more harm than good. I don't know why they thought that. But in any case, right now in, in, in England, four out of 10 Britons believe that Jesus was a fictitious character that never actually existed. Silence is not what the wilderness needs. Silence is not what the wilderness needs. If we would use our voices, we could quench even the thirstiest of souls in America. Are we willing to use our voice? The second greatness that I think God wants us to understand is a greatness in humility. A greatness in humility. Greatness in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, you want to be great? You want to know what it means to be great? And they're like, yes, tell us. More money. And he's like, you become a servant. You become a slave. You help other people. You become humble. And at this point in time, John in his ministry, he has like so many people, hordes of people coming to him. The Bible says this, and all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized. John had a following. John was somebody. You need to understand that. The Bible says that people started calling him the, the second coming of Elijah, which means that um, they, like, they thought that Elijah, well, Elijah did go into heaven without dying, and they thought Elijah was going to come back, and they thought John was it. And by people saying this, it was saying, you are a man of repute. You are a man of, you are somebody. It's like saying to somebody in Silicon Valley, you're the next Steve Jobs. You are the next Mark Zuckerberg. It's like telling a young preacher, you're the next Billy Graham, and they're like, well, thank you. Or it's like telling LeBron James, you are the next Michael Jordan, which he's not, you know? (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Guys, I'm kidding. I don't care about about basketball, but he's not. (laughs) John was somebody. John was somebody. Everybody knew who he was. And then this happens to John. It says, they came, meaning John's disciples. They came to John and said, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everybody's going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's talking about Jesus and his church. The friend of the bridegroom or the best man is the one who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine has been made complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What's happening here is John's disciples are coming to him and they're like, John, we got a problem, bud. Come here. Elijah, by the way, we love you, John. You're the man. Uh, You photo op later, okay? They're like, John, we got an issue. We got an issue. All of our people going across the river, getting baptized by Jesus, man. And we'll hear churches talk this way sometimes. They'll be like, all of our people are leaving. They're going to another church to worship Jesus. (laughs) 
You know what? The, you know what they're saying in this moment? They're saying, "Jesus, all, those are our followers going after him." And John says, "You got it all wrong, guys. You got it all wrong. I'm not the Christ. I'm the best man." Have any of you been in a wedding recently? You've been a best man, you've been a maid of honor. Like you know as the best man, like you drop like two G's on like a suit that you have to give back tomorrow, right? And you do it because you love the groom. And you know like you're, the, the day of, like your whole job is to make sure that he's got his vows and that his suit looks nice, right? And that you've got the rings and you're ready. Like your whole job is to make sure that he gets together with his bride. They come together, they become one sacred unit and you get out of the way. If you're a maid of honor, right? And the bride's like, oh, girls, I'm so excited. Everybody's wearing coral, you know? (laughs) And you're like, oh, I look so hideous. But I got you, girl. Like, I got you, right? I got you. This is your day. (sighs) I look like a tent. It's fine. You know, like... And, and, and you make sure that her dress is pressed and her makeup looks awesome and you make sure that she's got her vows on lock and that all of the details of the wedding are right and you make sure that those two come together. You get out of the way. And John said this word, he said, I am the shoshpin, which was a Hebrew word for the best man. And the groom, a Hebrew wedding would last a week and the groom, his only job was to pay, prepare the home for the bride, which reminder, this is what Jesus is doing for us in heaven. And the only thing that the groom had to do was that the shoshpin did everything else. He set the tables, he did the guest list and made sure that Aunt Sue sat next to somebody she wouldn't bore too much, right? And like, got the food, he got the linens, he got the stuff, and he set every, everything so that the day came and they could come together. And he would get out of the way and he says, you guys are jealous. You are jealous because you think my followers are going, this is why I'm here, to introduce the bride to the bridegroom. I'm, I'm the shoshpin, I'm the best man, I'm not the Christ. My joy is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. And if you are a Christian and you are in here tonight, this is our job. Please do not buy the lie that you must increase for Jesus to increase. That you must be more for Jesus to be more. Our job, we have the grace and the privilege of preparing someone to meet Jesus and then getting out of the way. In fact, if, if, if it was modern day America and John, John was, you know, John the Baptist, if I was John the Baptist, if I was Jess the Baptist, this is what my Instagram account would look like. And I have no followers. Because I've spent my whole life being like, have you talked to this dude? He is the man. Do you know that he has mercy and grace upon grace? Do you know that he's the son of God? Do you know that he speaks to me? And people are like, well, that sounds pretty good. I don't think I'm going to follow you, Jess. I'm going to follow. And then this is what Jesus' Instagram account would look like. <laughs> and he'd have 7.3 billion people following him because that's how many people are on the planet right now. You can go ahead and think that down. He says, my joy, my joy has been made complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Listen to me. If you are in here and you have a lot of opportunity, you have a great opportunity right now. The greater the opportunity, the greater the need for decrease. If you have a great role, the greater the role, the greater the need for decrease. You have a great name. The greater the name, the greater your need for decrease. You have a great, um, you have a great whatever. The greater your need 
for decrease. Our job, our privilege is to introduce somebody to Jesus. Get out of the way. It's not my show. It's his day. It's his day. He must decrease, or he must increase. We must decrease. And the last thing is this, a great life for God's glory. A great life for God's glory. All of the greatness, none of the glory. See, greatness in the world is how do I get, how do I amass more for me? Greatness in the kingdom is how do I give myself away for you? How do I give myself away for you? How do I give myself away for you? How do I give him glory? Let me give myself away. Let me give myself away. Let me give myself away. So that he gets glory and he gets his people. Are you living the greatest life possible? Are you running the best race possible for his kids and for his glory? Because John did. And I think John was so happy to do it. I even think that when he was in the prison cell and he knew his fate, I don't think that the reason that he asked Jesus, are you the one, was because he was scared of death. I think it's because he wanted to make sure that his life was exactly what he had purposed it to be. The person that went before Jesus paved the way and then got out of the way. I think he was fine to do this because he knew who Jesus was because he had met Jesus in the water in the Jordan. The Bible says that John is having a moment with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he's like, you brood of vipers and like kind of insulting them. And then he tells them, he says, I'm baptized with water, but there is one that's coming after me that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he says this, he says, I am not fit to untie his shoes. I'm not even fit to untie his shoes. And then up up walks Jesus and this is what he says to John. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Jesus walks up and he says, hey John, um, I need to get baptized as well. And John's like, whoa dude, Um, look, I need to be baptized by you. Like, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, I'm John, you know? And they have this argument and Jesus ends up winning. And he says, no, we, we have to do this, John, to fulfill all righteousness. It's good that we do this. This is part of my father's plan. And so they wade out into the Jordan. They wade out into the Jordan and picture this. I mean, John's like, okay, son of, son of the living God, um, can you please plug your nose? And cross your, cross your arms, king of kings. And then I picture, I've pictured this a thousand times as I've read it. I picture Jesus allowing the full weight of his body to be in John's arms. And John holds him and puts him below the water and back up. The closeness of Jesus in this moment to John. The humility of Jesus in this moment. There is no one more humble than our God. There is no one greater than our God. John knew humility because he had seen it in Jesus. John knew greatness because he had seen it in Jesus. When Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens opened up and the spirit ascended like a dove or descended like a dove. And God said, this is my son. I am well pleased. And then he looked at Jesus and he's like, now go get my kids. Go save my kids. The humility, the closeness of it, the man who knew no sin, allowing himself to be baptized by a sinner so that he could later save John. 
this is our Jesus. And I think, I think John was completely good living the life that he did because he understood who Jesus was. Do you understand, church, who this Jesus is? Because if you did, I don't think you'd be afraid to use your voice in the wilderness. If you did, I don't think you'd be afraid for your life to decrease, decrease so that he could increase. If you did, I don't think you would mind living the best life you possibly could for the sake of the kingdom and his people and his children. We must decrease, but he must increase. Could everybody stand? I just have one question and it's this, with every head bowed and every eye closed. If you are in here today at any of our campuses and you do not know this Jesus that I'm talking about, the son of the living God, the Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sins that keeps us eternally separated from God. This is important. Understand this. Jesus came. The father sent him as our propitiation for sins. He got up on a cross and he died for every single sin that you have ever had, past, present, and future. But then get this. This is where it gets nuts. He he died for your sins so that you could have heaven forever. But then when he rose again, by his life, he now gives it to you if you will call on the name of Jesus. You not only get heaven forever, but you get the Holy Spirit in the here and in the now. This is the good news, church. And so if you are in here today and you do not know this Jesus, but you would like to receive him for, for the very first time as your Lord and Savior, would you just raise your hand nice and high, nice and high. Amen. 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 <laughs> Jesus, we thank you so much. And if all of the church at all of our campuses could pray, Lord, we thank you. Go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you. Out loud. We can do it. Lord, we thank you for sending your son to die for my sins. I thank you that by receiving Jesus, I not only receive forgiveness for sins, but I receive the life of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that I would be a voice in the wilderness and that my life would be great for your glory. In Jesus' name.